Welcome to the Black Duck Revival Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Wilkins. I'm excited to have you join me as I speak with a fascinating collection of folks, all of whom have in common that they've made a way for themselves by finding an intersection between thoughtful consideration and the tactile work of getting their hands dirty. This is an examination of intention, capability, and craft. It's where philosophy meets the blue-collar work ethic and where I find real value. Hey folks, welcome back. This week I'm joined by Dr. Devin Pettigrew, originally of Northwest Arkansas and now a resident of the greater Denver area there in Colorado. I was able to stop and talk with Dr. Pettigrew on my way back from BHA Rendezvous. I uh, drove from Missoula through Wyoming and ended up on a Sunday evening, kind of late on a Sunday evening, uh, ended up there at his house. And him and his wife were kind enough to let me hang out for a couple of hours. They gave me a can of mead, my first time drinking that concoction. And I had a really fascinating conversation with Dr. Pettigrew. Devin is a published academic author. He's also a working archaeologist there in and around northern Colorado and throughout Wyoming. And his specialization is ancient projectiles, specifically arrows, darts, and atlatls. Uh, you might be familiar with atlatls. That's kind of the precursor to the bow and arrow. Uh, we'll go into some detail describing it, but this is what a lot of the larger points, projectile points that people are finding, you know, stuff like Clovis points and uh, some of those more famous examples, those large arrowhead, quote unquote, uh, that's really, those are really used, you know, thousands of years ago by some of the original inhabitants of North America. And they were putting those on the end of varying length uh, shafts and they were hurling them at big mammals, you know, mastodons and uh, woolly rhinoceros and deer and elk and bear and man this is this is such a cool conversation i mean like if you're a person who grew up watching the discovery channel or like what the discovery channel used to be like or uh, any of those national geographic documentaries it it kind of felt like i was in a real life version of that but also kind of big questions and answers and things to think about as far as the cyclical nature of humanity and the fact that something that was so intimately used by a person thousands of years ago uh, is kind of accessible to us and can really just be found by walking around and, and being observant or just happenstance. Devin's doing a bunch of really cool research involving demystifying some of these projectile tools and figuring out what they can tell us about the past and the present. And man, this is really just a super interesting and fascinating conversation. Uh, you know, I talk about in the beginning, uh, the intro to this podcast, the connection from thoughtful consideration and the tactile work of getting your hands dirty. And that's so applicable to this conversation and this subject matter, both, you know, as, as how they're being found, how a lot of this evidence is being found, you know, in the dirt, but also to think about how these things were made and uh, what they have to tell us about kind of this continuum of humanity. So please enjoy this conversation with Dr. Devin Pettigrew. 
Hey folks, uh, I am in Colorado today, uh, Denver-ish area, and this one's this is a cool podcast. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, I've been driving all day. I just left the rendezvous up in Missoula, and so I've been driving since about six this morning. And uh, my guest this week was kind enough to allow me to stop by his home after dark here. Uh, I probably got. One more long drive ahead of me before I get back to Arkansas. But, uh, yeah, I'm here in the home of one Dr. Devin Pettigrew, who is an archaeologist originally from northwest Arkansas and now uh, based in and working out of northern Colorado. And, Devin, thank you so much for letting me step by your house at such an odd hour. Absolutely, yeah. It's a pleasure. Um, so... Yeah, let's just like real quick, let's kind of establish who you are, what you're doing. Uh, you're doing super interesting work, like we were just talking about before. You're doing a ton of interesting work about uh, maybe some of the, the origins of ballistics, which obviously intersects a lot with hunting. Uh, but even more interesting to me is maybe kind of some of the human origin type stuff. But yeah. Uh, but, you know, I'm sitting here right behind you. I'm looking at all these projectile points, you know, what would commonly be called like found arrowheads that you were telling me your father found many years ago uh, yeah. in his childhood. Uh, so, yeah, man, just, you know, I guess what might be cool is maybe just define for folks exactly what an archaeologist is. Because I bet people, there's a lot of people that have maybe a confusion between archaeology, anthropology, paleontology. Yeah, a lot of people confuse us with uh paleontologists um the latter of course dig up dinosaurs and we are dealing with ancient people so um archaeology in the united states is a subdivision of anthropology which is the study of human beings and uh, we're simply studying people that have been here in the past and are no longer with us and uh mostly we're looking at things underground right because people uh, left sites behind, they left artifacts behind. And in some cases, we've got things above ground architecture, that sort of thing. But, but mostly we're dealing with trying to understand the archaeological record, which is primarily on top of or underneath the earth. And it's all about ancient people. So and when you say ancient, like, what's the range? Is is civil war research is that archaeology or that is archaeology yeah and i've actually done some really cool archaeology on civil war battlefields um i've i curated a collection from p ridge yeah battlefield in northwest arkansas and did a survey of prairie grove battlefield uh, also in northwest arkansas and, and found some really cool things uh so that's definitely part of the archaeological record um now it's kind of because we have to have some kind of benchmark as to what, you know, what we deal with, uh, we look at anything that's 50 years old or older. Okay. So it's, you know, it's a hugely broad range. It doesn't necessarily mean that if we find something that's 50 years old that uh, we're going to spend, you know, a lot of time documenting or excavating it. We just, we start to take note of things at that, at that cutoff. And then it goes back. I mean, um, we can do archaeology, archaeological analysis of, of uh, like ancient technology that uh, early hominins used, you know, uh, one and a half million years ago. So 
it's a, a hugely broad range and it doesn't necessarily stop uh, before our species came into being. And so we were talking, like when I first got here, we were talking about how your area of interest is in uh, ancient ballistics. Mm -hmm. And so, like I said, I'm looking at these projectile points that obviously uh, were interesting to your father when he was uh, yeah. growing up. As they are to a lot of people. Sure. Uh, I can't, I would assume that has some influence on what you're doing now. Oh, also, yeah. <laughs> I, know, I know that you grew up hunting. Did you know that I went to college with your brother i did not yeah, oh I, you went to hendrix yeah i didn't know that oh. until very recently i guess he's like a year older than me okay we, did, we didn't know each other <laughs> but we went to college together yeah. and i bring that up because i i know ryan from backcountry hunters and anglers and so obviously uh hunting's super important to him and how he's raising yep. his boys uh i see you've got antlers and yep uh, got some antlers uh flies over here so you're obviously still very much involved uh in those outdoor pursuits. So, I mean, is this, is this just, not just, but is your research uh, a way to combine all these different lifelong interests? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I got really into to hunting, obviously, and um, uh, dad and also my mom were really interested in ancient stuff. Dad had collected all of these projectile points uh, from uh, his homestead around Kings River and uh, he was just uh, really fascinated by the past and um, and so that got me really involved in that and then um, I remember in Boy Scouts he actually taught Indian lore and he had this little pamphlet that he had picked up somewhere on vacation I've actually got it here on my bookshelf um, and it's just a, a quick description of how you make an atlatl and a sling and uh, I saw that at Indian Lore. I guess for some reason I'd never seen that book before, but he brought it out for that. And I think about a year went by, and I got to thinking about that, and I thought, I want to make a sling. Uh, so I went and dug up that book, flipped through it, and then uh, found the outlet. And that was when I was probably about 14, 15 years old. Uh, started making this stuff, tinkering with it, researching online. And, and back then, you know, there wasn't, whole lot of information to to find but um but there was the world outlet association had a uh an online presence and so i was reading through their forums and uh i just got completely you know enamored with this thing all right let's let's freeze frame for one second i want to ask you two questions uh the the correct pronunciation of this because mm -hmm. it's ATL, ATL. Yeah. So is it is it Adelatl? Are you saying like the same the same little short thing twice really fast, or you can say Adelatl, or you can say Atlatl, and both of those are incorrect. Technically speaking, it's a Nahuatl or Nahuatl uh, term, and that's the language of the Aztecs and other Nahuatl speakers in Mesoamerica. So. The correct pronunciation is something like atlat. Okay. Yeah, uh, which is hard for a lot of people to say. So we have anglicized it, and I think the most common way for uh, modern Americans to say it is atlatl. All right. Uh, 
That's that's the second time in like a few weeks that uh, the Aztec language has come up on this podcast. Interesting. Uh, Hank Shaw, two of his cats have uh, Aztec names. Oh well, we've incorporated some some uh, Nahuatl words into uh, our modern English. That may, may be one of the most familiar to uh, your n- listeners is Coyote. Yeah. Yeah. So that final TL is a. T- sound which you make by it's kind of like how you say a t but instead of using the tip of your tongue you're using the sides of your tongue and then that got kind of bastardized and turned into coyote coyote yeah which coyote is pretty close to coyote yeah so yeah so atletal atlat i'm gonna say atletal okay cool. uh, <laughs> and then uh i'm looking at like an atletal dart right now and mm-hmm. The, what would you call this part of it? So this like is the lever part. Or? This is the actual atlat. Okay. The atletal. Yeah. So and then the, then there's a dart. Yeah, and then there's a dart. Uh, yao meat. Um, can you try? Can you try like uh, to describe someone that can't see this to describe what it looks like? It's you know imagine you have a javelin and you have an arrow, and you put them together. Now you have a big arrow. <laughs> it's flexible. Yeah, uh, incredibly so. Yeah, it's it's quite flexible. And it's got to flex because when you launch something, you're not just pushing it from the back in a perfectly straight line, right? Perfectly in a straight line with its trajectory. You're actually making an arcing motion because you're throwing something. Mm-hmm. So uh, what the atlatl does is it basically lengthens your arm. Uh, uh, what people in biomechanics talk about is the kinetic chain where um, as you step forward, you're kind of cocking back your, your, um, your, your joints are, are cocking back. And then as you throw, you're putting momentum into those additional segments down the line. Uh, so from your, you know, your full body, your torso to your shoulder, to your forearm, to your wrist, and then you have an additional segment here. So it adds leverage. And um, the atletal is it's roughly two feet long. They vary in length quite a bit. It has a little bitty knob at the end here, a little hook or spur. Uh, in some cases, that's actually a socket. But for the most part, it's a, a spur that connects with a little bitty indention in the back of the dart. Okay. So you have the spur. fits up against the indention there. And the dart is fletched like an arrow so you got some fletchings on there and then it rests across your your hand here so um, in your ready position you're holding it back like this with the dart pointed at the target right it's not like raising up or or anything darts pointed at the target you're looking down at you got your arm kind of cocked back ready to go and when you throw you just step forward and just launch it straight at the target Um, and it flexes to compensate for that arcing throwing motion and maintain a straight trajectory. And then this dart is, what is that, five feet long? Yeah, this one's about five feet. They range from five to ten feet. Really? Ten feet? There's a huge amount of variability in the weapon. Yeah, that's one thing that people uh, don't think about or or they forget, um, including archaeologists even. Uh, we, we tend to kind of essentialize this and say, you know, a bow is this, an atlatl is this, a spear is this. 
but there's a huge amount of variation in all those weapons, uh, and the LL is no exception. Um, this one is probably on the lighter end of the spectrum, but it comes off the outlet traveling about 25 meters a second. Uh, we'd have to do conversion on that to figure out. <laughs> I deal with meters a second, unfortunately, uh, what FPS that is. But that's enough uh, velocity for this dart to kill a deer. Yeah, so this thing could punch right through a deer. And then if you were hunting something bigger, you'd, you'd scale up. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and then was this, this was used, so obviously if it's an Aztec word, I'm guessing it was used in what's now Mexico or perhaps yep. Central America. And then across North America as well or across South the America, world? South America, North America, Asia, Australia, uh, Europe, uh, the Arctic. We don't have good evidence for it in Africa. Never seen any evidence there. Hmm. Um, Why do you think that is? Well, th there's a couple possibilities. One is that it was used there and we just aren't seeing it. Because, you know, projectile points on the board back here, those could belong to anything. Those could be, those could have gone, the big ones could have gone on really big arrows. You can make, and people have made very large arrows. Uh, but for the most part, we think that the vast majority of what people call arrowheads in uh, North America belong to atletal darts or they were knives or something like that. Um, I lost my train of thought. We were talking about why there we're not finding evidence of it in Africa. Oh, okay. Right. Uh, historically, however, in Africa, people were very good at hunting with spears, hand thrown javelins, and in fact, in some cases, ethnographically, as recently as the 1970s, they had um, remarkably high success rates hunting big ungulates with spears. Um, you know, wildebeest, zebra, buffalo. So like the Maasai warriors, they would be like the, the tall, yeah. skinny guys with like the long braids that do a lot of jumping you might see on TV. Like they're yeah. known as like hunting lions with spears, right? Yeah, and rarely, I mean, look at pictures of, Okay, so now nowadays the, Mas the Maasai have uh, firearms. But look up pictures of traditional Maasai, and it's rare to see those folks without spears. They, they grew up from a young age with, uh, with spears. And so they were very good with them. Um, and in southern Africa, the San also hunted with spears. They also hunted with small uh, bows and arrows, um, poisoned arrows. And... It looks archaeologically like their their basic hunting kit dates back seventy thousand years, something like that. So, so why isn't the atletal in Africa? It may just be that there's a long tradition, you know, of the kinds of weapons that we see ethnographically that they were very effective with. Yeah, seventy thousand years of something working is pretty good. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, okay, so let's. Let's come back over to this side of the world. Um, and I'm trying to figure out how to go into this conversation. I'll just start asking some questions. So uh, when we were looking at some of these points earlier before we started recording, and I was asking you about some of the time frames, right? So you're talking, mm -hmm. uh, if I can remember this correct, you're talking about Dalton points, yeah, uh, Searcy points, uh, 
there was a another creek. Snyder's, uh, Williams, Langtree, Calf Creek. Calf Creek, yeah. yeah. And you're and you're explaining to me that these are all uh, diagnostic in a way that you can say they're they're made in this way, and so that's how, that's where the name's coming from, right? Like Dalton yeah. points share these similar characteristics and so on. Yeah. Uh, and then I was asking you about like what are we talking about as far as how long ago? And one of them you referenced, you said, you know, maybe five to 6,000 years ago. Uh, are most of the projectile points that people would be finding in uh, North America, are those going to be uh, like in that range or older? Or are we talking about, you know, a more recent uh, examples of indigeneity, like, you know, the last couple hundred years? Yeah. Uh, the vast majority of, of points that people pick up are archaic so uh you know 2000 years back to roughly about 8000 years uh the date range varies depending on the specific region you're in uh which is frustrating but that's archaeology um but you know there's there's just this very long time span over which people are practicing this hunter forager lifeway and um they're using as their primary piercing projectile weapon for hunting and combat is the atlat. Uh, they probably had other weapons as well. In, in some cases, we know that they had um, uh, boomerangs, straight flying boomerangs, which is the, here here in North America. Yeah, yeah, I've got a couple of examples up there. Um, those were used for hunting and combat. Uh, people don't think about a boomerang as being a, a deadly weapon, but that's how they started out was as uh, deadly thrown weapons that are, they're just killer gyroscopes that fly a long way and they, they hit hard with, you know, right on this uh, sharpened edge of the wing. And so you can kill everything. You can kill rabbits with them and they used them for combat. Um, and, and they had other tools as well, but for the most part, what we see left behind, what they actually left behind that we can see now are stone projectile points. Um, so that's for the most part what people are picking up. In some cases though, they're finding older stuff and in some cases they're finding newer stuff. Um, but when you get back into the paleo uh, projectile points, you know, 9,000 years and older, there weren't as many people then the populations were smaller, so they left less stuff behind, which makes it hard for us to to know, you know, sp specifically when people first arrived. If they came into an area and they had very small numbers, they weren't leaving a lot of stuff behind. So the chances that archaeologists are actually going to find it are lower. And then later in time, the bow and arrow came in, uh, starting in... in we can think of the, uh, the continental United States probably about 3000 years ago, the bow and arrow arrives. And then, uh, in most places it's prominent. People are using it around 2000 years ago. And then a lot of places there's, an, um, about a thousand years, give or take or more of overlap between the two weapon technologies between the bow and arrow and the atletal and dart. So, so, you know, just in terms of time, how, how long people have been on the landscape, leaving things behind, um, just chances are you're going to be finding mostly archaic type or later um, at little dart points. And then when the bow 
when the bow came into being after that overlap period, did it just pretty much usurp the atlatl? No, not really. Um, a lot of people think that, and that, that's our starting assumption, but I think that um, we have a lot of uh, bias that we bring to the table there because we're, uh, we're very focused on technology. Um, one of the problems I'm, I'm dealing with now is that in my research um, is that archaeologists have, they've not only assumed this kind of technological deterministic perspective for humans, um, you know, when a better technology comes along, everybody's going to use it. That's a technological deterministic assumption. You you forget that people are people are people. We do weird things, or we hang on to traditions, or we actually, uh, in some cases, may be incredibly skilled with an earlier weapon technology. And we see a lot of um, examples of earlier weapon technologies like spears, uh, javelins, slings persisting uh, up to the present day. But uh, we also forget that the animals that we hunt are, they're also responsive. You know, they change their behavior determining, deter, depending on uh, how they're being hunted, right? Um, and we see this with elk, for example, elk and wolves. When, when you introduce wolves into an area, the elk now have to d figure out what this new creature is. Like, how do I deal with this? And they develop new behaviors. Um, they and they pass on those behaviors to offspring, and they become more challenging for wolves to hunt them. So, um, but for animals to to start to develop those new behaviors, there has to be enough of a presence of predators on the landscape. So uh, animals become more challenging to hunt, and modern hunters deal with this problem all the time. As our numbers increase, as we become denser, it's harder to find animals. You know, out west, uh, it's very clear that elk and mule deer become more challenging to hunt as hunter densities increase. So um, it's it's really quite interesting that the bow and arrow comes in to North America and starts being adopted more heavily at a time period when people are also adopting agriculture and becoming more sedentary and their numbers are, are going up and they're hunting in more, you know, localized areas. Uh, yeah. So, so weapon technologies, I, I think we have to get by the, our assumption that one thing is better and people are instantly going to latch onto it because there's a, a lot of different ethnographic, uh, accounts where that's not the case. And I mean, the Adelaide was a, this wasn't just a hunting weapon, right? Like this was an instrument of war, wasn't it? That's right. Um, so our first reintroduction to it as Europeans, when the Spanish arrived in Mexico was as projectiles that were being launched at them. Um, it was a very common instrument of war in Mesoamerica. And, uh, there's an, a, there's a theory, or I guess it's a, um, what do you call it? A, a public myth. What is the term I'm, I'm looking for? A public, what, like an old wives tale. Uh... Yeah. No, it's not, that's not quite it, but 
We'll, we'll yeah, call we'll, it an, yeah, we'll kill ourselves trying to remember yeah. now. We'll call it an old, old wives' tale. Um, that the Atletal Dark could pierce Spanish armor. And there's all these depictions of Spaniards in Mesoamerica wearing like full suits of armor. But those are probably, for the most part, those uh, codices, indigenous books, writing, and a lot of times it included pictures. Um, were made well after the conquest because their books, their pre-conquest books were burned, unfortunately, by the Jesuits. Um, but then the Spaniards realized, uh, actually, native writing is extremely useful to us because they're, they're very good at you know, documenting things. These are their, their land claims. Uh, communities use these codices to say, to draw out their territory and they use them to to uh in accounting you know how much tribute um and so so they started restarted this this uh, codice tradition after the conquest and they were seeing these pageants spanish pageants in which um actors were wearing like medieval type armor like full suits of armor actually during the conquest though most of the conquistadors were wearing uh, native armor, native gambus and like a quilted cotton, heavy fabric armor. And that wasn't at all strange to them because they came from in Europe uh, where gambeson was very common, you know, heavy fabric armor. So, so they acquired it from um, Mesoamericans. And that's probably what they're talking about for the most part when adults could, could pierce their armor. They're, they're, constantly referring to their armor it's their native the the quilted cotton armor that they acquired from mesoamericans and so that would be what you're describing would be like uh i mean would it literally be like quilted cotton like look like a quilt kind yeah, of yeah i mean or? you just think about like carhartts put a bunch of carhartt fabric together like really thick canvas um, that's gambus and armor um, it's just a, a thick, and there's a lot of different ways to make it. Um, but so it's, yeah, it's just a, a really heavy fabric, thick fabric armor that oftentimes was sewn together in kind of a quilted like. And it's, I would, I would imagine that it's better for protecting you from like a slashing motion than from a, a puncturing type. Yeah. Yeah. If you combine it with, um, with chain mail over the top, you get good protection from slashing and it gives you some padding. Sure, um, but the gambeson armor is much better than chainmail at protecting you from piercing uh, from arrows or crossbow bolts, or in this case, atlatl darts. Hmm. All right, so you you alluded to it there, but let's talk a little bit uh, about your research. And we were talking about you being up in Missoula and yep. doing this bison research and stuff, and like what's kind of really separating you and what you're looking at from. Uh, you know, a lot of the, the ballistic, the ancient ballistic uh, research that's done previous, been done previously. Yeah, so I'm, I'm looking mainly at terminal ballistics. And uh, the, the field of ballistics deals with three main types of ballistics. Um, internal ballistics being the, the launching or the firing of the projectile. External ballistics being its flight through atmosphere. And then terminal ballistics being... Um, impacting and, and penetrating a target in the case that it that it does penetrate. 
So my research has focused mainly on terminal ballistics. Um, I'm looking at both arrows and at little darts um, using a variety of stone points that have been napped by modern nappers, um, representing ancient forms of all different materials. And um, I've used them on the carcasses of animals, fresh animal carcasses. So what we do is we get a uh, an animal from a rancher. The rancher puts the animal down for us in the way that they always do and uh, humanely. And then we immediately set out testing um, these ancient weapons on them. What kind, of, what kind of animals are you talking about? So we've tested a hog, two goats, and a bison. Okay. Yeah. And, um, oh, and a, a cow that, that had died. Um, my, my very first projectile experiment was my master's, or uh, sorry, my undergraduate thesis was on a, a cow that had died the night before. Um, so from the beginning, I wanted to test a bison, and uh, I finally got to do that last year. So uh, mainly what I'm looking at is is the efficacy of the weapon, like how, um, what makes the weapon effective. And, but because of the way we set up the experiment, we use high-speed cameras, uh, one camera observing the flight and impact of the projectile, the other camera observing from the side, and the darts have markings on them, so we can actually use the, the camera observing from the side to calculate the velocity. Yeah, it's like, uh, did you ever watch Mythbusters? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's like that high-speed, that's exactly, yeah, I get what yeah. you're saying. Yeah, and uh, terminal ballisticians, even in firearm studies, use high-speed cameras in this regard all the time um and then but actually what they can't do which which i figured out i can do is look at the deceleration of the dart as it penetrates or of the arrow as it penetrates um, and if you if you look at that uh, closely you can track the force of resistance that the projectile armature meets as it's cutting through or the force of drag on the, the trailing shaft. So there's a huge range of variables. Um, and I've looked at, I've done a, an extensive st statistical analysis to try and determine, you know, what's making these weapons effective. Uh, what makes them effective? Well, so unsurprisingly, kinetic energy and momentum play a huge role. And um, also unsurprisingly, the, the sharpness of the armature, the stone armature, is extremely important. When they first contact the carcass, they hit skin, and skin is the most resistive soft tissue on the body. So first the, the armature has to deal with the skin layer. If it gets through that, it may have to deal with uh, some muscle tissue directly underneath, and then cutting through... The internal organs, of course, are, they're far less resistive. So, I imagine the amount of hair on the critter too makes a big difference. Yeah, I think um, I I do think that we we overplay that a little bit. Okay. Yeah, I haven't seen. You know, I've the goats were like really. <laughs> I, the white goat was really fuzzy, and I don't I didn't notice any any difference in. Um. So I do imagine that, you know, there's something there. Like if you have really coarse, thick hair, 
but um, but I I think that we overplay it a little bit. Uh, the main thing is the thickness of this of the hide, mm-hmm. how much energy, how sharp, and of course the projectile has to be well designed. It has to be uh, you know pretty stiff up front so it's not bending too much as it as it penetrates and has to hit with a straight trajectory. Uh- that actually makes me think about maybe we should, because I'm sitting here looking at these, and you know I've seen some of these uh, or points like these before, but there's there might be someone listening who doesn't know what napping oh, yeah. means, right? And so, yeah, as I understand it, you know the result is something that's like a serrated, uh, a serrated blade. Uh, it's not which is going to have a different different kind of effect than you know just like a modern super sharp laser laser sharp uh, yeah. piece of steel yeah exactly uh so what's interesting that that i discovered that i hadn't really thought about before is that the main thing that that set them apart set the armatures apart was the material that they were they were napped from so when you're napping something you have stone that's going to pro- to break in a predictable fashion and if you've ever seen or done yourself shot a window with a bb gun as a kid um, you will see this cone form where that bb hits the glass Um, that's called the hertzian cone so when we nap we're using that the way that it breaks following that that hertzian cone um, to understand the material to to break it in a a controlled fashion. So we're when we're napping, we're basically breaking rock a whole bunch of times, uh, flaking off, driving off flakes. Some are, are quite large, and and then we finish it off usually with a, a pressure flaking uh, method where you've got like an, a sharp piece of antler that is pressed up against the edge, and then you're levering off smaller flakes. And that, so that's how you're getting all. Yeah. The like serrations on the variant. So you're using like a a larger rock or something to to break this into the general shape, and then you start refining it with that yeah that smaller point. Yeah. So so what it produces is a fractured edge. It's going to be as sharp as the material is when it fractures. Uh, you're not going to take it and and grind it like you do. You know, basically with a knife, you're, you're grinding it on stone uh, to sharpen it. Here, you're just fracturing it. And you're using that natural fractured edge. And so, I mean, what, so this one that I'm holding is, is this like a, is this like a shaft that would fit into a longer one? Yeah. And come apart? That would, that would fit into a, the main shaft, like a piece of, of river cane. Okay. Uh, so this one has a foreshaft in it that we can pull out. See, and it's the same thing. Okay. Yeah. So the one you're holding there, um, that I handed you first is a pretty close replica of ones that were found in the Ozarks under rock shelters, mm-hmm. mostly in the early part of the 1900s. Um, that one from All Red Shelter, which is now under Beaver Lake. But what uh, and then what? What would this material be like? What was what rock is this? That is Burlington Church which outcrops there in the Ozarks. Um, so 
you're, you're generally going to be working some kind of chert, um, which is a, a sedimentary rock. It, it's um, where, you know, it forms in limestone where silica precipitates and, and hardens, crystallizes. Um, but you can also work various types of volcanic materials, um, mudstones. There's all sorts of different things that you can nap. Um, obsidian is, is volcanic, of course. Is that like the sharpest stuff you can yeah. do it out of? Probably, yeah. It's it's extremely sharp. Although, um, one thing that's that I'm realizing is that people haven't really been looking at sharpness that much. Uh, and so... Th- this is kind of silly, but you know we've over overlooked this really important um, feature of uh, of stone armatures how sharp they were. Um, so, so I just had an apper telling me recently that this type of of agate, uh, pigeon's blood agate from uh, this is from like the southwest, he felt was sharper than obsidian. He had received horrible cuts from it. Um, and he sent me a little pigeon blood agate arrow point that's absolutely gorgeous. But uh, obsidian, yes, it's extremely sharp. The other problem with it, though, or the other thing about it that's, that's problematic is that it's also pretty fragile. Uh, so chert's, so there's kind of like uh, a balancing act, you know, where, where you're going for something that's that's sharp, that's nat- nappable, but is also durable. Because these armatures aren't just having to cut through skin, they're also having to deal with bone in the case that they contact bone and they need to, to survive that event and get through the other part of the animal and go, go on and, and cut a path and size a wound. Um, were, were these designed to be, and I think I know the answer to this because we were talking about these, these pieces that have been reworked, but were they designed to be one time use or they wanted to get as much use as possible out of it? Uh, that's a really good question. Archaeologists will be, uh, we could get a few archaeologists in the room that would argue with each other about this. Um, it it does look like people were often trying to retrieve and, and resharpen, rework armatures if they could, um, especially early on. Although we have really overplayed that for Paleo Indians, you know, we we think uh, these people were like optimal foragers. They were going out on the landscape with this like highly refined toolkit that not only functioned for them, but that was durable, um, that they could keep on reusing over and over again. And um, they were actually discarding points at a rate about the same as, as uh, later archaic people were. So, so they were definitely retrieving points and reworking them. And frequently when people find quote-unquote arrowheads, they're finding points that were, they're either broken from impacting something or they were reworked significantly. It's it's going to be pretty rare that you're going to find something that was like it was when it was first manufactured. So yeah, you're getting you're getting the the least good stuff. You're getting the broken stuff or yeah, the stuff they couldn't find again. Yeah, yeah, you're. you're I mean, we're picking up garbage. <laughs> um, it's kind of like it, I frequently find shell casings when I'm out hunting. Mm-hmm. It's like if you were to pick those things up and, and come back and make a design on your wall. <laughs> yeah, 6,000 years later. <laughs> yeah, with 30-06 shell casings. Um, yeah, those are, are left behind for a reason. Uh, and it's frequently because they were dull, they were broken, 
um, or maybe they they were lost inside the you know the viscera, the organs of some animal that was butchered. Uh, various reasons, but for the most part, they're impacted. They're reworked. They're they're used up. So, I'd like to delve a bit deeper now, because uh, I think we have a we've got a little bit of a of a basis for understanding this technology mm-hmm. and understanding your research into it. Uh, I'm interested, you know, in delving a bit more into. Why is this worth studying? You know, like we, we have these weapons that have in in so many ways surpassed surpass the efficacy uh, of these ancient tools. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if, and if we're even, you know, if we're talking about picking up garbage, like the leftover stuff and like, why are you dedicating your life to this? Why is why what is the relevance for people today? Yeah, well, the relevance for people today, of course, for. Uh, you know, it's the general relevance of studying anthropology. It's extremely worthwhile to study human beings. Um, as human beings moving forward, if we want to, you know, go on and have successful civilizations in the future, we need to understand ourselves. And uh, part of that is understanding our past. We can we can use archaeology in ways that um, other research, history, Anthropology doesn't allow us to uh, to do to to study people because it it reveals things that there's just no other way to reveal it. For instance, if you if you go out on a, a historic battlefield and you very carefully study the uh, material on that battlefield, it can give you a view of that battle that is remarkably different than historical documents or that in some cases supports historical documents. So when we study ancient people, ancient hunter-gatherers, for me, I'm trying to understand not only what were their lives like, what was it like to to live back then, to live on planet Earth before humans were were incredibly dense, before we had these, these large permanent structures, um, when we made all of our tools by hand, when we acquired all of our food by hand. Um, seeing that is extremely important. But I also want to know, uh, how did these people interact with the world around them, the uh, plants and animals? Uh, what were their relationships like with the prey that they hunted? You know, And how does that compare to uh, our relationships now with the prey that we hunt now? And... Um, in fact, it was remarkably different. You know, if we look at uh, what's the Great Plains look like now versus what it looked like 200 years ago or 300 years ago or 1,000 years ago, now it looks incredibly different. So our relationship with the world around us um, with wild animals is now completely different. And I think people need to have a better perspective on that. Um, you know, a lot of people, they, a lot of people don't like hunting, right? Sure. Um, but now how do they acquire their food? I mean, the great plains now supports humans. It doesn't support humans and the animals that they hunted. It supports humans and domesticated crops and domesticated animals. 
So um, another, you know, going back to what I was saying earlier about animals changing their behavior uh, in terms of how they're being hunted. Uh, if you introduce a new predator on the landscape, animals, prey animals are going to change their behavior. That's something for hunters to, to think about because in the deep past, when this weapon, uh, the atletl, and also the spear, like the sawn used historically, uh, when those were the weapons that people were hunting with, um, densities of humans on the landscape was far lower, right? And uh, we know from wildlife management studies that as hunter densities go up, hunting becomes more challenging. Uh, and if you look at the San case, historically, they had a very low density, but they were very good uh, with you know hunting with spears, hunting big ungulates with spears from from blinds. Uh, they were getting up to eighty percent success rate per day. Well, they were they were building blinds and hunting on the blinds. Yeah, platform stands up in trees, along rivers, uh, blinds near watering holes. Um, they were hunting animals in all, all sorts of ways. They were also running animals, um, uh, digging animals out of burrows, you know, all sorts of ways. But but they're hunting uh, big ungulates, wildebeest, zebra, kudu, and they have a very high success rate. And what the anthropologists say in account after account is that using the spear, they're hitting the animal and the animal's dropping on the spot or very near to where it was being hit, to where it was hit because... You know, if it's being hit with a spear, it's got a big sharp head on it. And uh, they were, you know, driving those things through the sides of, of Buffalo. So uh, so they were extremely good with their weapons. Um, and I think they're, in terms, if you're just looking at efficacy, I, I'm no doubt in my mind that you could pull random examples. Uh, modern Modern hunters in Colorado sawn hunters when they were being documented in in the 70s and you would come away with a completely different perspective on you know what uh weapon efficacy looks like and how you attribute it to uh, these different weapons so uh you know studying this kind of thing ancient ancient hunters for me it's incredibly eye-opening in ways that people don't expect or don't realize and that's the purpose that's the purpose of of this research is is to reveal the unexpected um and you know show us where our data has gone wrong or you know what we what we've got wrong or or what we just don't know i'm gonna ask you a question now that uh like i told you before there's i'm not trying to play gotcha on any of this stuff, but this is something that has been coming up as of late. And it, uh, we just briefly kind of touched on it, uh, before we started recording, but you were showing me some projectile points and you said, this is stuff that I picked up as a kid before I was an archeologist. Oh right? yeah. And I said, you wouldn't pick up a point now. And you said, no, I wouldn't. Yeah. Uh, and so there's a, you know, kind of in the public, uh, a hazard to call it the public intelligentsia, but uh, <laughs> just like yeah. you know, there's a there's been a lot of discussion, yeah, recently on internet forums and some podcasts and stuff about you know whether it's 
I guess I guess we're dealing with a, a, a matter of morality largely, but if if it's right to pick up yeah. a projectile point when you when you come across it. Now I'm not talking about the legal side of it because if you come across that on like BLM land or yeah. some sort of publicly managed land. Uh, and most of the time, legally, you're supposed to leave that there. But if you yeah. own a piece of property and you come across this stuff, uh, it you know kind of it's kind of up to the person uh, who owns the land. So, why are you not doing that uh, as an archaeologist? Uh, yeah, as an archaeologist, you you kind of take this unsaid oath. Um, it's about data, and it's about understanding ancient people. Um, so for instance, I was, I was telling you before we started about what I'm doing now, which is um, cultural resources management. We go out and, and do surveys if there's any project on public land, uh, vegetation management, anything like that. We need to do a survey and make sure that there's no important cultural resources there that are going to be disturbed. And so we go out and document things. Nowadays, even if you go way down some dirt road on BLM into the backwoods of Colorado. It's often the case that you're, you're surveying landscape and you're finding archeology, span but you're, you're not seeing the things that should be there. that are these pretty diagnostic points that people like to, to pick up and lo, be, lo and behold, um, you will find some modern garbage around too. And it looks like, um, what, we know has happened in the most, in most cases, those sites have been picked over already. Um, out West, a lot of sites are on the surface. They're not very deeply buried. So the artifacts will be right there on the surface and people like to come along and collect things. Why, why, why is it that they stay on the surface out West? Uh, it's about deposition. Um, you know, if you're in a river Valley, you have sedimentation, uh, it's coming down the river and, uh, or off, off the sides of the, the hills. Um, the river sometimes floods and deposits sediment. You'll have sedimentation in the river valley. On up top, it's washing. So you, you've got, um, you know, the reverse process up, up top. Um, so it just depends on, like, the processes of erosion and uh, so on and so forth, where you're at the specific spot that you're at on the earth surface out West. A lot of places are, are getting uh, eroded by wind and water just off the surface. And, uh, you actually don't have sedimentation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, uh, people pick these things up, what we call diagnostic artifacts, meaning that they have some attributes that make them distinguishable that we can say, you know, this is a particular type of point, like a calf Creek point. That's about uh, 5,000 years old, give or take. Um, so if those are there, we can walk the landscape, see the sites, and say, here's a, a Calf Creek site over here. This one has Dalton points on it, but it also has a later woodland component. You know, so just walking the landscape, you can, you can uh, see these things. And just there, I was, I was actually referencing uh, Arkansas point types, not things you would find in Colorado. Um, so, so it's, it's incredibly frustrating for archaeologists to, to go out on the landscape, document these sites that have never been documented before, but there's, there's a preservation bias already that we're dealing with in that most of the, the cultural material that was left behind thousands of years ago has not survived. 
you know, most things were made of wood or, or plant fibers, those or, or leather, th that's all gone. Uh, but we should be seeing these different types of tools that indicate different kinds of activities, uh, types of tools that indicate cultural periods that we can go back, plug that all in into a big map and have a database that we can draw from and say, uh, you know, the Dalton people had a population of roughly thus and so because because this was their uh, where their sites were distributed. Uh, these, this is how big they were. Um, they were using different parts of the landscape. Maybe um, if we look really closely, we could even infer something about the time of year that they were there. And we can get all sorts of information about ancient people, you know, how they were moving on the landscape, what their lives were like. Uh, and, and now, you know, for people to, to walk around and, and occasionally pick things up, that's one thing. But, but for people to go out and deliberately target archaeological sites, pick up artifacts, and then not record anything about the locations of those artifacts, uh, nothing. Just add those. They eventually get put in like a shoebox and, and put in their attic or, you know, their kids inherited and have no clue what to do with a bunch of old broken rocks. Um, yeah, that's, that's really frustrating to archaeologists. Um, however, I have boards of my dad's art artifacts that he picked up as a kid. They're meaningful to me because they remind me of him. I don't want to, I have no use for those personally, um, other than seeing them, but I can see those in a museum or I can look up pictures of them online. Um, and nowadays I can make those or friends of mine who nap, uh, better than me can make those. I can make the atletals and darts. I can half them the way that they were. I can throw them at, at things and see how they break. We've recreated the technology. So for me, I've seen so many of these things now experimentally that I just have no desire to, to own, you know, something like that. To me, it's the informational value. That's what's important. Why do you, th I mean, the, this is, be I don't know that this is beyond archeology span because this is definitely, this would definitely fall into the study of humans. Why do you think that so many people have the inclination when they see that on the ground to that they want to pick it up and put it put it in their hands yeah. and hold on to it and then take it back uh i think they're well f for one thing they're diagnostic you know as we were saying um that indicates something to archaeologists it also is a, a characteristic uh you know you you can look at that and, and say that was deliberately made a lot of time went into that and it takes a, a very particular shape that the the craftsman was was going for, um, and that means something, and it must have meant something deeply to them. People are are fascinated by this stuff, and that's great. That's what we want. Um, part of it also has to do with our culture, how we view ancient artifacts, and archaeologists have done this. I mean, we 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 started the trend of going out and collecting treasure. You can watch Indiana Jones and get a sense of what early archaeology was actually like collecting treasure and putting it in museums. Um, and that, uh, the public, uh, took that up as well. So, so, um, people aren't to blame for this stuff. I, I think in, unless they, they just say, screw you, I'm going to go out on public land and <laughs> pick over a bunch of art archaeological sites. What do you, uh,
do you have do you have much contact with your work with uh uh i mean like especially out west here like folks from from any of the tribes or reservations yeah i've got a couple of close contacts with the pawnee tribe um Another graduate student that just recently started here is uh, Suin. Uh, he's Lakota. So I've got a few uh, contacts with Native Americans. Have Have you seen a difference in the way those folks interpret these artifacts? Uh, or in the way that they think about them? Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. A huge difference. Um, and there's a historical issue there because... Not that long ago, your American archaeologists were going out and digging their graves. And I mean that they were going out and digging people's grandparents up and putting them in museums. So um, so they were being objectified in, in weird ways that, that um, you know, your American people were not because they weren't digging your American cemeteries. Um, so we have a, actually... There's a lot of bad blood there, mm -hmm. understandably. Um, and I think that's that's just starting to get repaired with the newer generations of of some Native American archaeologists, like the ones I just mentioned. Um, but they they definitely have a very different you know perspective on on this stuff than we do for very good reasons. Uh. So beyond the technology part of it, what and well, and you've you've talked about it to some degree about uh, the difference in the the human density versus the animals and how the animals and the humans interact there. But are there any are there any kind of like bigger, headier, like human? I mean, have you learned anything you think about humanity in general th through this research? Yeah, I definitely have. Um, just looking at hunting weapons, um, archaeologists, a lot of archaeologists have assumed that there's going to be a transition from simpler weapons to more complex weapons through time. Um, and when we start looking really closely at the archaeological record, there's all sorts of, of examples where that's not the case at all. Um, so people, the way people use technology the way they they associate themselves with their technology or the way they use their technology to interact with with the world around them um, it's not necessarily there's a lot to that it's extremely complex uh, and we can't just assume that people are going to just grab or gravitate to whatever complex technology appears in front of them uh, so from that Knowing that, we're in a better position to look at um, ethno-historic examples like uh, people in Tasmania, for instance. Uh, not that long ago, archaeologists were saying these are an isolated remnant population of some like early, less advanced population because they're using very they have a very simple toolkit. Um, when you actually look more closely at their toolkit. And compare it with mainland, mainland Australian, Native Australians. Actually, there's another number, number of examples of people on the mainland with similar, very simple toolkits. 
uh, that was just what they what they needed. They had what they needed, um, and they relied more on their skill than on some you know complex tool that they had to build and then maintain. Uh, in the north of Australia, there were people with bows. They were in contact with islanders to the north of there that had bows, but they never uh, they never adopted the bow. Uh, and in Polynesia, they fought with javelins. They had the bow, but it was just uh, mainly a kid's toy or for shooting rats. They mainly used um, javelins. So, um, so if, I guess if uh, some of your audiences are uh, hunters, we should really think about the assumptions that we uh, you know, we have about hunting technology and, and what's good, what really works, um, and what that means for people uh, around the world. Because, you know, some people are, are extremely effective with a very simple, minimal kit. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like, uh, you know, like say with compound bows, right? There's this culture with compound bows where... I mean, there's a lot of people that every year they replace the bow they had the year before, right? Right. Uh, but, I mean, even if you just go back, like, to the 80s, right? Who I was talking to someone about. Do you remember the Fitzgeralds? Did you ever see them? No. There was this, it was like this father and son, and they shot. They still do it, man. They, uh, they shoot compound. I think they're up in Michigan. They shoot compound bows, but they shoot them with fingers. Okay. Uh, and, you know, when they started making videos, like, I mean, they were those big, giant, crazy-looking compounds, right? Yeah. And now you have these much more sleek Darth Vader-looking things. Right. Yeah. Uh, they, they're no longer really a bow. I mean, let's be honest. Those things look totally different. Yeah, it is. I remember when I when I first started hunting, because I didn't start hunting until I was a, an adult, and I, uh, I killed a whitetail, and I told my dad I did it with a bow, and whatever some time later my dad came down to visit me and i showed it to him he's like that's not a bow what is that thing man yeah. uh yeah but you know like so what i'm i guess what i'm getting to is that uh you know we we have a uh we have an inclination to always want like the newest and the best and the fanciest yeah. and the flashiest thing but you know really i've found that most of the best hunters that I know are relying on those woodsmanship skills. Yeah. Right. Uh, like I always say that like p trappers to me are some of the most impressive, uh, outdoors people mm -hmm. because I mean, and they're using a technology that yeah. is in many cases, hundreds of years old or at least a hundred, I guess when you're talking about like the, the conor bears, I think the conor bear came about in the fifties, but, uh, but they have to figure out those animals. They have to figure out where that animal is going to put its front foot or its back foot, where it's yep. going to enter, exit the water, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and that makes them much more effective than all the thermal imaging cameras and whatever else. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, compound bows nowadays, the newest ones that are being released are shooting arrows at over twice the velocity of traditional bows. And they have all those attachments. I don't know what those things are anymore, but but going back to what you're saying, yeah, I mean, if one of the main benefits of hunting is that you you build a relationship with with these animals, with these 
prey animals, uh, that you come to understand them really well. Um, then I think, you know, having more people try out the traditional weapons is a good thing. Um, I bow hunt, love bow hunting. Um, however, I will say that hunting is very challenging. Uh, modern hunting out West, especially because the densities of hunters in Colorado is, is tremendously high, you know, and we have densities that are over 12,000% higher than like the sawn I was referring to earlier, uh, during rifle season. And we have muzzleloader season that's right in the middle of bow season. So you have to be practical in, in some cases. Um, and in some sense during bow season, I'm out with a bow and I'm, I'm trying really hard. I'm getting a better understanding. I feel of, of elk and deer, how they use the landscape, uh, their behaviors. But you know, if I want to put meat in the freezer later on, I won't hesitate to go out with a rifle as well. So are you hunting with a compound bow or like a recurve or, uh, last year I was hunting with a replica Comanche bow. So a, um, probably about between three and four foot long, uh, Osage orange bow. Yep. Man, that's like, I'll be honest with you. That's exactly the answer I wanted to hear. man. <laughs> okay. that, that, that's awesome, man. Uh, and Osage orange, yeah. uh, would also be known as like hedge or yeah. I'm, I'm surprised you're from Arkansas, man. You should call it boat arc. Boat arc. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I got some of that French ancestry. So yeah. Uh, Bodark. yeah. What you know is like boat arc is a, is a super traditional wood for duck calls as well. Like turning duck calls. Cause it's so hard. Yeah. I've uh, heard that. Yeah. Yeah. I've uh, got, got a, some boat arc, uh, atlatls up there too. Shit. I've got a boat arc duck call in the truck right now, man, that I turned on a lathe. Perfect. Uh, do you, are you, are you, uh, personally, are you, are you put off by like compound bows and modern crossbows and stuff? I think I'm more put off by modern muzzleloaders. <laughs> I don't. So hunters go out. And this is a, this is an, this is a question I couldn't ask of most archeologists because yeah. like we were talking before, you have this, you have this really cool intersection of growing up hunting and still continuing to hunt, yeah. but you're looking at these I don't know, not to say in a diminishing way, but these like antiquated technologies. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, so two things there. First off, it takes a lot of skill to use them. And then second, the landscape has changed and our, our relationship with uh, prey animals has changed. Um, and what that means is that not only is it that hunters go out, you know, having worked a, a job all week and then they have just a couple of days to hunt. A weekend and maybe they they've only got two or three weekends to hunt in some cases but they're also going out onto a landscape where it's more challenging to be effective to be successful so no i don't i don't see people with compound bows and think you know what what has this guy got in his hand uh no it's fine i mean uh, people want to be they want to be out there they want to they want to hunt they want to be effective uh, and that is all completely understandable um, I do think though, that we should be a little bit more conscious about, uh, so one thing that bug, bugs me is the semantic shift that's occurring now where when people say bow, they mean 
a compound bow and when they say and then you have to say something like primitive bow or or you know a trad bow or yeah. yeah um so to me weapons can evolve evolve to the point that they're something different um and we've seen that we we have a we we distinguish between muzzle loaders and modern rifles um and and it's getting to the point now where compound bows are so different from a bobo that they I think we need to start thinking about them differently. You think they should have a new name? I Floopy Floops. That's what we're <laughs> going to call them. Floopy Floops. You're all sh- hunting yeah. whitetail with Floopy Floops. That's fine. And I mean, yeah, I don't want to get too hung up on it. If 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 uh, people keep referring to them on, as bows, that's fine. But I do think that we, we should be, you know, thinking these things through a little bit. Is it really that we just want the, the next best thing and that we want these weapons to evolve into something completely different and that we want bow hunting to be or bow season to be with a weapon that has uh you know a trajectory that's really not all that diminished relative to a rifle um the way folks are getting out there with i mean they're they're shooting 80 yards and stuff now yeah and i think um there's something to that what i just said because i think that people are what they're after is something that they they feel comfortable with and that they can be confident in and that's something that you can draw back, that you can hold back and aim. And using an aiming apparatus, know its trajectory, and that is going to have a very high velocity. Um, and that, to me, is you know very similar to how we use rifles. Uh, original bows, how people were hunting with bows in the past, is quite a bit different. The Comanche bow that I hunt with now uh, it has these short little arrows. It has flared knocks on the arrows. And when you grab the arrow, you grab it by that knock, you lay it on the bow, and you put that knock right up against the string, not looking at the string. Uh, you know, a lot of people line it up, line it up just right, put that knock right there on. They're looking at the bow, they're looking at the bow, and then they're looking back up at whatever they're going to shoot. No, you just grab the knock, put it on there. It's right up against the string, draw it back under your chin and release it and um, you're not drawing it back and holding it back that's not what you do with a, a wood bow especially so you're not gap shooting bows. you're like instinctive shooting that bow. instinctive shooting and um, and if there's anything analogous to aiming a rifle it's when you have that bow up before you even start drawing back the the arrow um, so yeah the function the functionality is very different and you have to be close with that weapon. Uh, people, if people are going to start back using more traditional equipment, uh, I think that that the interest is there. It's, it is growing. Uh, they need to understand that they're going out with a weapon that that does limit their range, and they need to practice in a lot of different positions. Um, you know, to replicate something like hunting, where you may be crouching or whatever when you shoot and you're going to need to limit yourself to shooting within a set distance, something like 20 yards or so, uh, to be effective. Otherwise, uh, you start running a greater risk that you're going to hit the animal, but not be able to retrieve it. Uh, man, that kind of brings me to my, to maybe one of my concluding points here. Uh, and that is, (laughs) How do you think that 
the way that you're approaching your research, uh, which I mean, I assume you, you know, you intend to be delving into this stuff, you know, for the rest of your career. How do you mm-hmm. think that the way that you approach it is different from somebody, uh, as Autumn, your wife said, she called them, what'd you call them? Uh, archaeologists that look at their navels, <laughs> yeah. right. That have, that have never, uh, never gone out in a hunting situation. And, right. Or armchair archaeologists, um, armchair anthropologists. There's a tradition of armchair anthropologists going way back. Uh, they're just, you know, sitting in an armchair theorizing about, about people. Um, and, um, it's hugely beneficial to get a practical experience with, you know, if you're studying ancient hunters, um, there's a famous archeologist from Wyoming. I was telling you about him earlier, George Frizen, who grew up hunting. He grew up, uh, ranching and hunting in uh, the Bighorn mountains, then became an archeologist. And in his, in his, um, Famous book, Survival by Hunting. He says archaeologists who study hunters should hunt. Um, and I think, too, archaeologists who study ancient weapons or the remnants of them, mainly like projectile points, should try and use them and should get a sense of, of actually how they work. Uh, because this isn't a lost technology. You know, we've, we've managed to recreate this. Uh, we're human beings, just like human beings in the past, and we can figure out how to to make and use a weapon that was built by and for uh, human beings. So, so yeah, doing this, like making the weapons, uh, trying them, um, practicing with them constantly, going hunting, it's just hugely beneficial from, for um, archaeologists. Yeah. And, and folks could actually use these technologies. Now, like not everywhere, uh, you actually had an experience where you tried to petition the state of Colorado to allow atlatl hunting, and yeah. that ultimately didn't work out. But there are st- – I mean, I know for sure, like my home state of Missouri, it's a legal way to hunt. Uh, there's other places where it is as well. And then with these, like, traditional or self-bows or primitive bows, whatever you want to call them, I mean, as long as you're – as long as they meet the poundage requirements that's legal for the state you're in – those are legal methods of hunting. Now, you, you do need to check because not every state will allow you to hunt with a napped arrowhead. Yeah, but, uh, that's right. Quite a few of them will. Yeah, you need um, to look closely at the regs because uh, I think in Arkansas you can actually use – they don't specify the material of the, the armature or the, the broadhead, uh, so you could use a napped point. We can't in Colorado. It has to be steel. Okay. Yeah. Um, so – so yeah, check the regs closely. And of course, if you're, if you're trying this stuff, you're building, uh, weapons to go hunt with, just, uh, make sure they're effective. I mean, you know, make sure that you can launch a dart both accurately and with good velocity and it's going to penetrate and same with the arrow. Yeah. I mean, especially so if you, I mean, if you're going down the road of, using some horn bow and a napped arrowhead uh, just out of the practicality out of hunting optics. I would hope that you would really put your, put the work in on the, on the front end of that uh, yeah. to be doing something that was super ethical. Uh, well, Devin, man, like uh, I know you said you're focusing on writing magazine articles and stuff right now. Hopefully one uh, day down the line, there'll be a book. Uh, you've got a website, you've got an Instagram, like what's the, what's the best way for people to find you and follow the work you're doing? Yeah, I think, uh, 
the website is is particularly good for me. I haven't been doing a lot with Instagram lately, just so busy uh, trying to publish research. Uh, yeah, but the website basketmakeratlatl.com. Uh, basketmaker is the type of outlet I'll use in the Southwest that I really like. Uh, yeah, we've got a lot of information there. I'm going to try and do an article about um, some of the, the efficacy stuff I've I've done. So, yeah, that's a, that's a good one. Okay. And then, do you, I mean, can people find you on Instagram or do you not really want them to? Oh, you can, yeah. AR.atletl. That's yeah. my Instagram handle. That's Like I told you, that's where I found you. And I was following you for like a year before uh, your brother mentioned something about uh, being related to you. And I was like, oh, really? Uh, well, also, man, uh, again, thank you so much for letting me come to your house after dark here on a Sunday. Absolutely. Thank you for uh, my first uh, can of mead. Yeah. We've been enjoying throughout this podcast. I, it helped get me in the mood to talk about ancient stuff. <laughs> uh, and thank you, folks, for listening. Until next time. Folks, thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Black Duck Revival Podcast. As always, it's produced by me, Jonathan Wilkins, and Brian Sachs. I'm stoked to finally be back home after about five weeks of, of travel. I made it through turkey tour, a total of six turkeys, three different species that would be uh, Rios, Easterns, and Miriams. I need to count up how many miles and, and how many states, but it was a ton of traveling. I got to see a ton of this country and hang out with just top-notch people, have fantastic conversations, have unbelievable meals, and really get to do some cool adventuring around this country. If you've been following along with that, I appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast and sharing it with your friends. Please continue to do that. If you have not done so, please subscribe on whatever platform you like listening on. Uh, leave a five-star review, uh, a written review. All those things are tremendously helpful. Uh, check out the website. That's blackduckrevival.com or follow along on social media. Instagram is what I'm most active on. And that's just Black Duck Revival as a tag. I'm starting to book something a little bit different for this next hunting season, which is where I can come to you. So, you know, a lot of folks don't necessarily have the time or inclination or, I guess, want to to come to Arkansas. Or maybe the price of a class is a little bit prohibitive for just them. But maybe you've got a duck club or a deer lease or a hunting situation there where you live with your friends and family. And you want me to come out? and hang out, hunt for a weekend. We can do animal processing and butchering. We'll do cooking demos and cooking classes. We'll, I also have the ability that way to kind of really uh, laser focus on what you and yours are you know, find most valuable and what sort of information would be most useful to you. And we can kind of tailor make a class that uh, fits you and the way you hunt and the people you like hunting with. So please, if you're interested in that, feel free to reach out to me just through the website there, or you can send me a DM on Instagram. And please keep listening. Please keep sharing. We'll talk to you next time.